Lung health updates for primary care providers, Conversations with NHLBI is a series of CME podcast episodes produced by PrimeMed in partnership with Learn More, Breathe Better, a program of the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute of the National Institutes of Health. In this episode on COPD treatment for primary care providers, we are joined by Dr. Mihala Stefan, a program officer with NHLBI's Division of Lung Diseases, and Dr. Milan Han, a professor of medicine and chief of the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care at the University of Michigan. We'll be discussing the range of treatments for patients diagnosed with COPD using spirometry, including lifestyle interventions, pulmonary rehabilitation, medications, and non-medication COPD treatments. In episode one of this podcast series with NHLBI, we discussed identifying cases of and testing for COPD in the primary care setting. Today in this podcast, we'll focus on treatments for those patients who have been diagnosed with COPD using spirometry. Dr. Stefan, can you remind our audience of the diagnostic criteria for COPD? Sure. So the diagnosis of COPD relies on the demonstration of fixed airflow obstruction using spirometry with a post-bronchodilator forced expiratory volume in one second, DFEV1, to force vital capacity FVC ratio of less than 0.7. However, most people with COPD will need further assessment to determine the level of airflow limitations, the impact of disease on their health status, the risk for future events, and an assessment of comorbidities in order to appropriately guide therapy. It is important to note that there are cases where people are symptomatic or may have computed tomography changes despite an FEV1 FVC ratio of 0.7 or more. For example, those with reduced FEV1 but preserve FEV1 FVC ratio, a category recently named preserve ratio impaired spirometry or PRISM. We want to underscore that the disease management we'll explore today relates only to those meeting the spirometric diagnosis criteria for COPD. Thank you. And a future episode of this podcast series with NHLBI will look at patient case studies, including a spectrum of patients with reduced lung function. So, Dr. Hahn, in patients who meet the criteria for a COPD diagnosis, what kinds of lifestyle changes can primary care providers recommend to improve a COPD patient's quality of life? That's a great question. There's actually a huge series of non-pharmacologic approaches for the treatment of COPD that are incredibly important for a clinician to consider. The first and foremost is uh, obviously smoking cessation. This is one of the most effective therapies that we have for COPD with respect to preserving lung function. So talking to patients about this is incredibly uh, important. it can be patients may find that they're more successful with quitting uh, when enrolled in a formal uh, smoking cessation program. There's obviously also uh, pharmacologic approaches that can help patients with smoking cessation. But the first thing is that we as clinicians uh, have to remember to talk to our patients about it. One thing I often say to my patients is that the likelihood of success with smoking cessation is directly proportional to the number of times they try to quit. So I think it's really important that we try to be motivational when we talk to patients about this and help them understand that this is one of the most important things that they can do uh, to help themselves. I often get questions about diet and nutrition. I am not aware of any specific superfoods or supplements that are some type of magic bullet. 
for COPD, but I think uh, generally speaking, uh, Mediterranean-style diet has been uh, shown, at least in observational studies, to correlate with good lung health. And I think uh, that the, the general rules of good nutrition also apply to patients with COPD, where having a healthy weight in, uh, in particular is really important uh, when we have patients with impaired lung function. Another really important aspect of holistic COPD care is regular exercise. Now, we're uh, fortunate that we have uh, some things uh, like pulmonary rehabilitation that can help, but these formal uh, exercise programs where patients get both aerobic activity as well as, as strength can be very uh, important for patients with COPD. And then finally, we, we also really have to think about comorbidities. One that I think about a lot is mental health issues such as anxiety and depression, where we know patients with COPD are at increased risk. You may even want to consider a simple uh, depression screener for your patients uh, with COPD. There is some evidence that cognitive behavioral therapy as well as mind-body interventions can uh, benefit patients with COPD. That's great, thank you. Um, can you say a little bit more about pulmonary rehabilitation? What are the potential benefits of pulmonary rehab to COPD patients, and what is the primary care provider's role? So as I mentioned, pulmonary rehabilitation is more than just exercise. It is a complete program uh, where patients get education about breathing techniques or medications, oxygen. Uh, they also uh, sometimes get counseling. And then there's the more formal aspects of exercise training that include both aerobic exercise, and that might be on a treadmill, it might be an exercise bike, it might be an arm ergometer, and then uh, a series of exercises designed to improve both upper and lower body strength. One of the things that I like to remind people of is that training effects are training specific. So if, for instance, a patient is having a hard time walking up their stairs and they live on a second floor apartment, then actually doing stairs may be a very important part of rehab. If a patient is having difficulty, for instance, putting their groceries away in the cupboard, uh, then uh, doing upper arm exercises specifically will make it easier uh, when patients are, are trying to do these types of activities in everyday life. Uh, the patients who would qualify for pulmonary rehab include those with a diagnosis of COPD. Uh, it is, uh, there is now a, a specific CMS indication for uh, COPD and really patients gold two and above who have uh, document, documented uh, dyspnea really uh, still would benefit from a formal pulmonary rehab program. The, the types of benefits that we can expect include symptom reduction, increased physical activity, uh, better daily life function, improved mental health. Uh, pulmonary rehab is most effective to improve symptoms and exercise tolerance uh, as part of a kind of global treatment strategy and, and has been demonstrated to be uh, quite cost effective. For uh, providers, what they need to know is that uh, you can uh, directly prescribe it as a primary care physician. It's, I think, really good to know where uh, the programs are in the area that your patients live. Uh, but if you're not sure, you can always uh, refer your patient to a, a pulmonologist uh, for uh, specialty care, and they can aid uh, with those referrals as well. Okay, great. Thank you. Um, so Dr. Stefan, what medications are used to treat COPD? 
Well, this could be um, kind of a long discussion, but I will try to summarize here. There are several maintenance medications for COPD with uh, various delivery options and duration of actions. And the main classes, as uh, most of us know, are bronchodilators, the beta-2 agonist and anticholinergics, anti-inflammatory therapies such as inhaled corticosteroids or oral glucocorticoids. And I want to mention here that these are not recommended for stable COPD treatment. Also, phosphodiesterase for inhibitors, antibiotics, or methylxanthine and also mucolytics. Treatment should be personalized, and the choice in each class is based on the availability of each medication, the cost, the clinical effects, side effects, and especially patient, patient preference. Now, each year, the GOAL, the Global Initiative for Chronic Obstructive Lung Disease Scientific Committee, reviews the published research on COPD and updates the GOAL document. And their most recent recommendation for treatment is based on symptom burden, respectively patients' level of dyspnea or impact on their quality of life, which is assessed either by the Modified Medical Research Council scale, the MMRC, or the CAT, the COPD assessment test score, and their number of exacerbation in the prior year. And I will summarize here their recommendations. So for patients who have only limited dyspnea and the disease has minimal impact on their quality of life, respectively an MMRC 01 or a CAT less than 10, and they have no or minimal exacerbation in the prior year, the group A, you'll start with a bronchodilator. And if a person in this group has only occasional dyspnea, you can use just a short-acting bronchodilator. However, if they have substantial dyspnea or the disease has a substantial impact on their quality of life, meaning an MMRC of two or more or a CAT of 10 or more with no or minimal exacerbation in the prior year, the group B, then you should start with a long-acting bronchodilator. And this could be a LABA, a long-acting beta agonist, or a LAMA, a long-acting muscarinic antagonist. You can also start a dual-acting bronchodilator therapy if they are really highly symptomatic. If the person is started on a single long-acting and have persistent dyspnea, treatment should be escalated to two bronchodilator. If a person has limited dyspnea, but they had two or more exacerbation or one leading to hospitalization, the group C, you should start them on a LAMA because research has shown that it has better efficacy in this patient population than a LABA only. Lastly, if a person has significant dyspnea or impact on their quality of life and has had two or more exacerbation or one severe, the group D, then you should start either a LAMA a dual bronchodilator, LAMA and LABA, or you can even start an ICS LABA that is an inhaled corticosteroid and long-acting beta agonist. Research has suggested that for patients who have relatively high eosinophils, over 300 cells per microliter, adding an ICS to the LABA appears to result in better outcomes. However, I want to mention that especially for patients with severe airflow limitation, we need to acknowledge that the risk of pneumonia is greater when we use an ICS-containing regimen, which means that physicians should have a conversation with the patients about the risks. So that is for the initial treatment. Thereafter, you need to assess the patient to see how they are responding.
If they are well controlled with their treatment regimen, you continue as it is. If they are not, you should consider stepping up the therapy. For example, if exacerbations are still frequent, you could consider a regimen such as triple therapy, or you could also consider the addition of phosphodiesterase 4 inhibitor or a macrolide, especially in former smoker. The GOAT strategy also suggests that if the patient is well-controlled for a significant period of time, then you can consider stepping them down. But I want to mention that treatment escalation has not been systematically studied, and trials of de-escalation are limited to the ICS. I also want to emphasize that patients and their caregivers should be taught the proper use of both the medication and the devices that are used to take them, making sure that they are using proper technique. And the technique for inhalers needs to be assessed regularly and before concluding that current therapy requires modification. Finally, when we are discussing an individualized COPD plan, we want to take personal preferences into account because people are generally not going to use devices or medications they don't like or they cannot afford. We also want to ask, do they understand when and how to take their medications? I believe it is imperative to use shared decision-making if we want to optimize and personalize treatment regimens. That's sage advice, thank you. Uh, Dr. Hahn, back to you. Uh, beyond these medications, what are other non-medication COPD treatments for more severe cases? So something we've had for quite some time and has demonstrated efficacy is oxygen uh, supplementation. Uh, there are two trials, the MMRC and the NOT, that demonstrate uh, efficacy, particularly for patients with persistent hypoxemia. There is data from the recent uh, long-term oxygen treatment trial to suggest we may not need to be as aggressive for patients who have only intermittent hypoxemia, for instance, ambulatory hypoxemia, where they did not uh, necessarily demonstrate benefit. But for patients with persistent hypoxemia, uh, oxygen supplementation uh, definitely uh, improves survival. We're also getting additional data on long-term non-invasive uh, ventilation for patients with uh, severe uh, hypercapnia. And then in the last uh, few years, we've also had some advances uh, with respect to uh, more invasive procedures. So the uh, National Emphysema Treatment Trial previously had demonstrated uh, survival benefit for patients with low exercise capacity and upper lobe predominant emphysema with treatment with lung volume reduction surgery. In the past few years, uh, we now have approval for an endobronchial approach to doing uh, something very similar, which is endobronchial valve treatment, uh, where uh, small valves can be placed uh, into the lung, uh, which causes uh, individual lobes uh, to collapse and thereby mimicking uh, some of the lung volume reduction effects that we see uh, or saw with the National Emphysema Treatment Trial. Uh, now, it, one of the uh, important differences to note is that uh, the uh, valve procedure can actually target almost any lobe with severe emphysema. If you are not sure uh, whether your patient would qualify for such a procedure, I think a helpful thing to remember is that for any patient with an FEV1 less than 50% predicted who has hyperinflation may be a candidate. 
And so these are the patients that you would want to consider uh, referring on. If you suspect emphysema and with a roughly an FEV1 less than 50% predicted, I think that would be a patient where it would be quite reasonable uh, to refer to a pulmonologist with the question, is this patient a candidate for endobronchial valve treatment? For any patient that you're thinking about uh, either lung volume reduction surgery or valve treatment, uh, getting them enrolled into a pulmonary rehabilitation program is going to just jumpstart the process for that patient because typically uh, that's a required element for both of those procedures. For patients with really, really uh, severe dyspnea, there are uh, palliative approaches uh, for uh, symptom control. Uh, where I work, we actually have, uh, and, I, and I believe that uh, Dr. Stefan has some uh, expertise in this area as well, but um, we have specific uh, palliative uh, medicine physicians who, who may be helpful. And then ultimately, uh, in certain patients, both end-of-life care and hospice care may be appropriate. What I will say is that Based on my experience, what, what can be surprising is simply how long patients with COPD may live in hospice. I have had uh, patients live over five years and even graduate from hospice. So it can be very, very difficult uh, to uh, predict survival. But I think the important thing to remember for some of these patients is that at some point, uh, just having that palliative mindset as opposed to a life-prolonging mindset uh, may be most beneficial for, for some patients. Very true. And I want to take a moment to thank you both for an excellent conversation. Dr. Stefan, any final notes you'd like to share with our audience? Sure, I do. So I um, want to, to tell you all that the NHLBI offers a range of publications and materials for primary care providers and for their patients, including a recently updated COPD healthcare providers toolkit. And these resources address several topics that we've been discussing today. For example, it's really important for people with COPD to stay on top of vaccinations. And we have a a program which is called NHLBI's Learn More, Breathe Better, which offers a fact sheet on COPD and vaccine that providers can share with their patients. And there are also several materials describing the proper use of inhalers. And finally, health education resources on COPD, but also on other lung disease, for example, asthma, are available at www.nhlbi.nih.gov slash breathe better.